Hello, and welcome to Mission Daily. On today's episode, Stephanie sits down with Edward Scott, CEO of Electrify. Edward has more than 25 years of experience working in technology. Keep listening to find out how they are attacking some of the biggest enterprise challenges with machine learning and artificial intelligence. Mission Daily is created by our team at mission.org. Ed, thanks so much for joining the show. Uh, It's a pleasure to be with you all today. So you said you are in Jersey City? We are in cloudy Jersey City, ready to get some snow and some cold weather here. Are you excited about that or not so much? You know, the change of seasons is a, is a good thing, and uh, we, are, we are excited about it, but uh, we'll see. We'll, we'll talk about that tomorrow. <laughs> so for anyone who's wondering who I'm talking to, I'm talking to Edward Scott. He is the CEO of Electrify. Ed, I would love it if you can give a quick overview of what Electrify is. Sure. Electrify is America's second oldest uh, machine learning uh, products company. We've been in business for approximately 12 years or so, 225 employees, four offices, Shanghai, San Diego, Jersey City, and Delhi. We had our roots really as a, almost as a technology consulting firm. And one of the old teams that was involved in founding this got the great idea to start focusing on, on AI. And I would say that that team got an A for vision and an F for execution uh, as to how that business developed. And we came in about a, a year and change ago and really be, began to make some fundamental changes to this business. This is a business that has great customers, Citibank, MasterCard, J&J, Norwegian Cruise Lines, T-Mobile, the United States government, big customers that have fairly substantial problems that they're, that they're grappling with. And we actually really just changed this company and, and brought in terrific management and, and really steady focus focused in a certain set of products, machine learning products to help our customers solve their business, their business issues, and focus with regard to a couple of verticals, namely healthcare primarily, the federal area, and some consumer and finance areas. And we really reshaped this business. And, you know, today uh, we took a business that was at the, we took a business that was 500 employees and eight offices and not a lot of focus and losing about 30 million a year to 220 employees, four offices, tremendous focus on an open agile technology stack, and we produce free cash flow each and every month. Wow, that's crazy. And when you talk about transitioning, so when you came in as CEO, the company was more of a consulting company. It had a closed platform, and you came in, you were like, hey, we need to open this up, turn this into the ML and AI company that the future needs. How, is that correct? That's absolutely right. You know, and I, I think you know, when, when I say the team, the, the old team got an A for execution, F for vision, or a, a for vision, sorry, F for execution. What I really mean by that is 12, you know, 10, 12 years ago, they got the idea that this, this thing called AI and ML was going to be very big. And, and they were very good at going out and getting some early customers, some early adopters out on the technology frontier. And that often happens. And we see that time and time again across technology waves that large companies always have budget and money for, you know, for innovation. This was no different. People trying to figure out how can they do better than rules-based software? How can they do better than body shopping? And, and machine learning and AI, machine learning in particular, offered uh, the, the opportunity and the hope for that. And what they built was they built a, a very close proprietary technology stack, proprietary code, syntaxes, compilers, things of that nature. It only worked on Hadoop, no cloud, no open source. And we came in last year and we said, what this company is really, truly good at is going out and being able to extract and, and get at 
very, very disconnected, chaotic, disparate data and bring all that together. We put all that, that ETL functionality, if you will, uh, on a unified computational Spark, uh, Apache Spark engine. We opened everything up. Gone are the, you know, the closed aspects of this, including all the coding. We let our data scientists and our customers' data scientists code in whatever language they want using notebooks. We actually use and reuse a lot of our knowledge and our logic through uh, containers and Docker's and, and Kubernetes. And frankly, it's no longer a platform based on Hadoop. Uh, we are agnostic as to where we get the data from the cloud, rela relational databases, Hadoop, uh, Netiza, Yellowbrick, doesn't matter to us. We're agnostic as to where we get that data and, and to where we return it also. So it's fundamentally very, very different and reflective of the world in which we live. Got it. And how did you know that was the right move? Because in hindsight, it might you know feel obvious like, oh, yeah, of course, a lot of companies are going the more open source route or opening up the technologies that were maybe, you know, behind the scenes or behind paywalls or things like that that people couldn't even look at. How did you know when coming into the company that this was the right move? And how did you make that big decision? I've been involved in technology probably for the better part of 25 years, heavily involved in uh, the creation and development of Akamai and content distribution and edge computing, and then I left to go to, uh, to move to Europe, uh, where I built Europe's largest uh, data center business called Interaction from a, literally a piece of white paper, which was just sold uh, last week for $8.5 billion. $300 million of equity turns into $8.5 billion. So these, <laughs> that's a big, pretty big technology. Yeah, it's a crazy thing, but it's a, that's reflective of what happens in the value creation of these big technology waves. But, you know, the data center business, I think, was, was very, very instructive because, you know, you get to learn a lot about customers and what their problems and their challenges and their needs are. And, you know, this particular, this particular uh, company that we built called Interaction had data centers in 13 countries, 23 cities across Europe. So it was a very big, we got a big cross-section of European corporates and truly understand and understood what the issues were. And they're the same issues that are facing companies in Asia and the United States. And, and essentially, you know, companies are looking, frankly, to do more with less and for the promise of, of technology to actually deliver on scalability. And part of that is, or essential to that scalability, is the ability to actually move storage and compute uh, assets and powers and capabilities out to the cloud and to be able to access those capabilities almost on a, on a you know, on a utility type, you know, of, of basis. And to be able to interact with these systems, not with, you know, closed proprietary software packages, but, you know, open, open, open packages and, 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 and languages. And when we came in here and we saw what the old team at Opera Solutions had built, we knew that, that it fundamentally had to change. In fact, one of our largest banking customers uh, told us four or five months ago, a company that's across the river here, that the uh, household then, they said, you know, you know, Ed, if you hadn't changed the, the platform, we were, we were going to have to fire you. And, uh, and terminate uh, our relationship with, with Electrify. But you guys have been enormous progress and strides and you've helped us actually manage our business better with the changes that you've made. So, you know, I saw these trends, you know, they've been in the making for 10 to 15 years, Stephanie. And, you know, every budget in every company is under pressure and no one wants to manage servers and no one wants to, you know, have football fields of, of people. They want to be able to to be free to use technology and uh, when and if and, and, and as, they, as they need to. And, uh, and that wasn't the old platform. And so we just changed it. Cool. Yeah, I love that. Did you have a lot of pushback internally when you came in and you're like, hey, new sheriff in town, I'm changing the whole direction of the company? Like, what was that like? Because, I mean, you guys have been around 
for a while before that, I'm sure there was a lot of people who did not like the idea of changing. No, they didn't like it at all because uh, this company really wasn't managed in the past. And uh, we we found out one of the biggest things, Stephanie, was that everybody sort of lived on an island. You know, the, the, the data science people didn't talk to the professional services people who didn't talk to uh, the software development people, the folks in Delhi didn't talk to the Americans who didn't talk to the, the Chinese. And uh, there were barriers everywhere, cultural, professional, geographic. And we, in order to be able to make these changes, we had to bring that we're talking about, at least on the as, as it relates to culture, and as it relates to the technology platform and the repositioning of this company toward a full-fledged machine learning products company, we had to break these barriers down. We had to break the culture. We had to take the culture down and, and rebuild it. And it's what we're actually, frankly, most proud of and, and, uh, and what uh, invigorates people to come into the office each and every day today. But you're right, there was tremendous resistance. But, you know, you chip at it each and every day and, uh, and you bring new blood in and new blood changes the direction, the tenor of the discussion. And you know what? Um, the flowers start to bloom. Yep. Yeah, I love that. So when talking about building culture, tell me a bit about how you thought about building culture at Electrify and what, what that process was like. Central to, the, central to our, our, our culture is, is a focus on the customer and humility. And let's take the last, let's take the, the, the word humility first and reverse the order. The technology business is probably one of the most humbling businesses out there. There's always something new. There's always a threat. If you're not willing to, if you're not willing to reinvent yourself, if you're not willing to be curious, if you're not willing to be a student of innovation, and a student of disruption, it's probably not the right industry for you. And more importantly, you can never believe that you are smarter than the customer or the market. You can never believe that. You have to approach the technology business with a, from a position of, of humility, and you have to approach your customers from a position of humility. And we do that. that those are the two central parts of our, of our culture, humility and customer centricity. And then the other values for us that are really critical, as I mentioned, curiosity, innovation, uh, respect, openness, you know, transparency. The uh, old regime never shared anything, uh, any numbers or direction with the, you know, with the employees. We share everything. They see it every Tuesday. You know, it's just a fundamentally different, different place. It's a culture that we're actually very, very proud of. At the heart of it is it's a high performance culture, to be sure. It's a culture based upon results, winning. But we do it in a way that is, as I said, is, um, is highly collaborative, highly conducive and, and communicative. And we're leveraging our resources across the world in order to create Electrify Always On 24-7, either developing, selling, or delivering. And we have two great country managers in China and in India who are critical to our vision. Uh, two women, Ms. Shen Sun and Ms. Daroj Venkatesh, two leaders in data science and software development in the respective areas. And they are absolutely critical to the creation of this Electrify Always On vision 24 hours seven days a week across the globe. And, um, and we can't, you can't achieve that kind of vision, Stephanie, unless you really are committed to cohesion, cohesiveness, and communication, and everybody can speak openly and honestly. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So earlier we were talking a bit about, um, so you have daughters, right? Multiple daughters or one or how many? I'm blessed with uh, three beautiful daughters. Oh, amazing. And you said that kind of helped influence actions you were taking about empowering women in tech when building the culture at Electrify? You know, a couple of things, you know, over the course of the past 25 years, I've been heavily involved in software companies, communication hardware companies, many of those in, in the Valley, uh, many of those across the world, as you know, we've touched on a couple today. And the sad thing that I saw, Stephanie, was that they were generally male dominated 
cultures. They were male dominated mm-hmm. from the in, from the investor side. They were male dominated on on the board side for sure, and they were male dominated in the executive corridors of of these businesses. And and I had three daughters, and I wondered why that was, and what was the vision that I wanted for you know for you know for my daughters, and you know when I joined as the CEO of of Electrify, you know a number of my daughters were talking, we were chatting about what they might be doing with their careers and where they were going to head. And I said, you know, you really ought to look at the technology business and let's talk. They all know about Akamai and Interaction and they know about Electrify, obviously. And they said, you know what, you know what, Dad, we're not, we're not sure that we're, we're, we're qualified or capable to do that. And I have to tell you something that broke my heart. We as a country have to come to grips that 50% of our workforce is not actively engaged in the technology sector. And if we are going to continue to succeed and lead as a nation, we are going to have to figure out how to harness that power of women in the technology. We are going to have to change. We're going to have to change how we recruit. We're going to have to change how we manage. We're going to have to change how we develop careers. We're going to have to change our companies fundamentally to do it. And so we set out as part of our mission here at Electrify to do that. And we have done that. We have walked that walk and we have talked that talk. So what are some changes that you've you've made coming into that or what are some things that you're doing that others maybe in the industry aren't doing? You know, first of all, I think we we have made a, a major effort to go out and recruit very talented women and put them in the leadership positions. Nancy Hornberger from IBM and Watson leads our global healthcare business. She sits on the management committee. She's effectively acting as our CRO right now. Deb Fahey from Boston Scientific and EMC Dell is our head of delivery. Diane Clark, who's our head of, of our general counsel, and uh, one of our top people in the company heads all of our administrative functions. Uh, Xian Sun runs our China office. Suraj Venkatesh, you know, runs our our India office. And we made a concerted effort, a concerted effort, to actually put women in leadership positions. Not because they were women, because they were very, very capable, and they deserve to be there. And this is the culture that we have built, and we are very proud of it. Yeah, that, that's amazing. Do you, Is there ever a time when you feel like you run into a pipeline issue where there's not enough women applying to certain jobs that you would like to have a woman in charge? Or because uh, I know that's a big complaint out here is that, well, they just don't apply. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, we looked for we looked for uh, a, a woman to be our head of technology, our CTO. We did. And um, we found it very we found it very difficult. You know, in the other functional you know areas right now, I think we've got our pipelines well established, our networks established. It's amazing. People are talking about us and, ha- and, and what we've done on the recruiting side and the leadership side. And it's beginning actually to feed on itself. So it's, it's actually turning into an asset for us right now. Yeah, I think one thing that also I've seen at least somewhat starting to change out here is getting women to talk more at conferences and putting, you know, putting their face in front of the company and being able to like get out in front of the public more, where I feel like even five or 10 years ago, it was harder to find you know, anything about a woman leading X, Y, or Z. So I think that's a positive change that I've seen um, happening, at least out here. There's no question. And they have to be in leadership positions and they have to be supported by the CEO and the board. And that's exactly what we've done here. And close to 50% of our management committee right now, our global management committee is is run by women. And and you know what? We shouldn't look at that as something that is unusual. We should look at that as something that's right. That's the way it should be because it's 50% of our workforce. Yeah, that's great. Are there any policies that, because recruiting women's one thing, but then keeping them, you know, in the workforce and whether, you know, 
it's maternity leave policies or any of that kind of stuff. Is there anything that you're doing at your company that is helping keeping women in the workforce? There's no question about it. And, uh, you know, when we came in here, this is a, you know, a, a, a uh, patriarchal culture would be the, would be an understatement. And uh, once we, once we got rid of that, we actually put in uh, maternity policies for, you know, for, uh, for the women uh, of this company. We put in paying for daycare and childcare, uh, all kinds of different things like that. Just, you know, my wife ran a desk at, at Old Bear Stearns and, um, in the bankruptcy area. And I remember, you know, uh, what it was like for her uh, to commute from Connecticut, go do that and, and, and so forth and take that leadership role. And we begin to think about, you know, what are the simple things we can do to actually reduce the friction, um, to reduce someone's stress and working from home a little bit, you know, um, you know, paternity leave, all these types of things sort of factor into the, the calculus of all this. And, you know, you can't solve everything, but you can try to, to, to reduce the stress level for, you know, for your valued employees. And I think that once they, they see that you're really, you really are trying to walk that walk and talk that talk, I think that goes an awfully long way. And we have, we have a long way to go for sure, but we made some great initial strides. Yep, I agree. And as more women move into leadership roles, they're the ones who are helping influence those policies where in the past, you know, it was probably a lot of men who were coming up with uh, maternity leave policies or any of that kind of stuff. And it's, yeah, because they're men and they didn't understand maybe what a woman might need to feel comfortable coming back or how, you know, that might shift an entire workday going forward or things like that. So that's great. Absolutely. And, th- and these are the things that we have to grapple with, that we have to change the way we, that we actually organize ourselves. If we're really going to truly harness the power of 50% of our workforce, that's currently not with us. We have to, we have to make some fundamental changes. Yep. I agree. So previous to this, or maybe currently, I couldn't really tell, are you a partner at White Oak Global Advisors? Yeah, no longer. I'm now fully here at, uh, at, at Electrify as the CEO. So all that is um, now over to the, to this side of the table. Okay, cool. Well, then in your past life, when you were there, I wanted to hear a little bit about, I was looking at your LinkedIn and I saw that you were, it said head of special situations, which meant you invested in companies and assets experiencing some form of transition, which felt like it tied in well to electrify. And I wanted to hear a bit more about what that was like and your experience there. So, you know, I'll take you back a little bit of history. I started off as a partner of the Apollo Investment Fund, working for uh, Leon Black and, and Mark Rowan years ago, and who are still friends to this day. And there isn't data goes by in my career what I, I don't use actually what I learned uh, at Apollo. And uh, and that you know Apollo was formed in 1990 at a time when uh, the U.S. was going through one of its greatest uh, financial crises, and um, uh, Apollo was the lender of last resort. And of course, that business then that 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 was. At that time, $800 million of revenue has grown to nearly $200 billion of, of assets, you know, under management, under the leadership of, of Josh uh, Harris and Mark and, and Leon. You know, I've been dealing with distress, you know, difficult companies, companies facing change, either on the right-hand side of the balance sheet financially or the left-hand side of the balance sheet operationally or both. Uh, I've been doing that for the better, virtually my entire career. And uh, a lot of it in tech, but not, not exclusively, as you know. And um, when the call came with regard to what was going to happen here at at at, uh, at Electrify, uh, you know, my experience in 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 both tra- uh, repositioning of companies operationally and financially, and in particular in the technology space and where this company was in the machine learning space, I knew this one was going to be a very interesting ride indeed. 
That's awesome. So how do you know which companies can be transitioned and rebuilt versus ones where you're like, you should probably just scrap that? Like, how do you, what kind of indicators did you look for or um, any red flags or things like that when investing or looking to move into a certain leadership role at a company? It's all about, it's all about the customer, Stephanie. A for vision with the old team, F for execution. But I'll tell you what, there's a good group of customers here and those customers were not churning. They were not leaving. Even if the old technology, the old kludgy closed proprietary platform, those customers had come to rely a little bit, you know, on, on what was being done. And the economic model was also very interesting, something that I saw at Interaction and I built from the ground up. We built a monthly, quarterly, and uh, yearly recurring revenue business with our customers. So each year we woke up on one one or January 1 of each year, we knew that X dollars of revenue was coming in, in the door. And that's what was here. And, you know, I knew that if we could transition the technology from the closed proprietary platform into something else, if we could bring in fundamentally really qualified senior executives and adults into the key functional areas of product, DevOps, delivery, technology, sales, channels, service. I knew we could do that. And we had this capability and we had these customers who for, for some reason or another, we're still staying on here that I knew that we could do this. And that's the transition. That's the transition. That's the bet I made. Stephanie, truly, it's a great question, but that's, that's the, uh, that's the fundamental bet I made. And, um, and, but we've made a, a tremendous amount of product of progress, but having the customers is critical to that. And I went on a, a listening tour with each customer. Everything I do is customer oriented, everything. We listen to our customers. We ask them how we're doing. We ask them to grade us against other vendors. And we try to talk to them once, two, three times a week and to understand their problems and to know that we're walking this journey of transformation with them in machine learning. We're right there by the side. The guys have been doing this for 12 years. We're by your side. We're going to do it. We may not be perfect all the time for sure, but we're always going to be there. We're always going to do the right thing. There's never a gray area. It's black or it's white. And the customer is always the most important thing. And I saw that, that, uh, that the customers were sticking by this and, and I, I made the bet that we could turn we could turn this, that we could transition this. Without the customers, without the uh, monthly recurring revenue, the quarterly recurring revenue, I don't think it would have done. Was there data easily accessible for you when you're you know, looking at either Electrify or other investment opportunities prior to that? Was the data of like churn and you know all that kind of stuff available pretty easily? Or did it take a lot of digging to actually have to find out well, you know, what does the customer makeup actually look like? How long have they been around? Do they churn or not? Because to me, that seems like at least out here, if you ask companies more, you know, the startups and things like a lot of times they don't know. So how, how is that process going about finding that data? So we were we were aware that, you know, we could see, for example, how long a company has had a transaction, you know, a, a, uh, a transactional history with with Electrify or at the time it was known as Opera Solutions. We could see that data. Right. And we could see who was in charge of, of those relationships, whether they were at MasterCard, City, where, wherever they were. And what we did, Stephanie, is we went on a tour to go talk to our customers and to listen and to understand what their business problems were, what they liked, what they didn't like, and what they really wanted technology, and in particular AI and ML, to help them do. And you know what they told us? They said to us, we don't need another cloud. We don't need more cheap bandwidth storage or compute power. We have six people offering us all of this for nothing. That's an overstatement. It's, there's a cost there, but there's a race to the bottom 
on, 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 the, on the price that all those cloud guys are charging. What the customer said was, we need people to give us products and solutions that help us run our business better. Can you help? And we answered that call. And we answer that call each and every day. And this is when I talk about being customer-centric. We truly and utterly put the customer at the center of our business. We listen to them. And they know. And, and they, told us, they, they told us what their problems were. We have problems with fraud. Can you help us? Well, yes, we can. We've, been, we've done it for Humana, for Citi, for MasterCard. Okay, fraud is everywhere. Can we do this in machine learning? Yes, we can. Shen Sun, who runs our China office, is a, is a leading expert in AML or anti-money laundering. They asked us, can you help us determine what's in our contracts? Think about that, Stephanie. The world, one of the world's largest pharmaceutical companies came to us two days before Thanksgiving in 2018 and said, Ed, we have a problem. We have no idea what's in the contracts of our suppliers that supply our key pharmaceutical uh, plants around the world. And we said, what do you mean you don't know what's in there? So we don't know that people have gone on to different parts of the, of the company or they've left. We have no idea you know, what the key terms, words, and conditions, what the phrases are. We have no idea you know, whether we're at risk with our, our suppliers, whether they're engaging in you know, fair trade or human trafficking or you know, child labor. We, we have no idea. We need to, can you help us? We built a system called Contract AI. They came to us and they asked us, can you help us run our global procurement businesses better? We don't think we're getting enough out of Ariba or Coupa or some of these other players. Those are all fine companies, but some of these guys say, we need more. Can you help us in machine learning? And we did, we answered that call. We answered that call for Johnson Johnson. We answered that call for Mars. We answered that call for very large companies. That's awesome. So it's more providing the solutions and not just providing the tech for them to Giving them the tech isn't going to give them the answers to what they need. That's exactly right. So you can have a great relationship with AWS or Azure or Google yep. Cloud. But what our customers truly are telling us, all these customers, Norwegian Cruise Line and Steamboat, are saying, please help us, help us solve our problems. Can we use machine learning to target market better? Can we use machine learning to spot fraud? Can we use machine learning to help us spot risk in all of our contracts? Can we use machine learning to help us manage our workforce and human capital management? Or can we use machine learning to help us manage our global procurement better, to take the risk out, to spot the saving? You know, th- these, are, these are not very sexy areas. These are, these are basic, boring areas in a company. That's where you find Electrify, providing these basic machine learning solutions and products to our customers that help them improve their profits or performance each and every day or reduce risk. That's what machine learning means to us, those three things. Got it. And do you have to kind of spin up a new team for every problem? Is there risk of kind of being spread too thin where you're tackling a million different, you know, very unique problems to different companies to where, you know, if they, for whatever reason, didn't need it, a whole group of people, you know, are there for one specific, maybe it's like a healthcare billing issue or whatever, and then you don't have that problem anymore? Or how do you think about scaling that? You know, that's a, it's a great, we, we think about scaling in, in two ways. First, at the center of that is focus. We focus on a couple of key verticals, and the consumer vertical and the healthcare vertical and the federal verticals are principally where you find us. So that's the first thing. So we're deep into the payers and we're deep into the providers, the healthcare payers and providers in the United States. So when we're talking and providing uh, and, and developing and deploying uh, machine, based, machine learning based products, those customers are telling us what their problems are. So we're dealing with, we deal, I think, with 150 hospitals, maybe 200 hospitals across the United States right now. We help them capture mischarges. We, have, we help them in the denials. 
space, uh, things little things like that. You know, by focusing the next hospital or the next insurance company or the next agency that comes in our door, chances are, Stephanie, we understand we understand what the problems are that they're facing. And chances are, and chances are we have the code that is ready to go through Docker's containers and Kubernetes that's able to be reutilized for the benefit of that new customer that walks in. So we go by going deep, we can understand our customers' problems very well. We can typically understand what their data looks like so we can stand that data up, we can clean it, we can extract it, transform it, clean it, normalize it, prepare it for machine learning. And when we capture componentized logic through Docker and containers and Kubernetes, we're able to actually reuse code. We don't have to. We don't have to build. Keep building new code. So that's how. That's how the. That's how the sausage is made, and that's how. That's how we do it. Yeah, that makes sense. So yeah, focusing on a certain vertical or industry and betting big on that from the beginning then allows you to scale, so you can help people in the same exact industry because a lot of them are probably facing the exact same problem. In particular, one thing to point out in 2000, coming out of the Great Recession, 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12, the, the only areas that really grew were the federal sector and healthcare. And so we made a, we made a pretty big bet on, on, uh, on those two spaces. So whatever happens out there in, you know, in the economy, we believe that, uh, that the technology adoption in the federal and the healthcare spaces will be the principal places to be. Very cool. So to shift way back, was there anything in your, any jobs or things like that in your younger days or childhood that you think helped you get here or maybe lessons from your parents or let's go back to the young Ed and think through who was that and how did that help get you here? Well, the young Ed was going to go on and be a professional tennis player. Okay. My dad was a professional hockey player. I hand coordination for somehow how runs in the family. But, at, you know, uh, alas, I got, I got injured and, and, uh, and derailed and, uh, and the great, the great uh, plans of, you know, being recruited to a college and, and then going off and playing on the tour, they went away and, and they went away very quickly. And that was quite a shock. And so a young guy in high school had to figure out how to get grades, how to get them fast and how to reposition myself. My world was rocked. And I think that's probably the most important lesson in life. You never know where the curveball is going to come, but you have to be humble and you have to be willing to adapt and to be open to new ideas and to always know that, you know, you, when you step on that competitive court, wherever it is in life, you can win and you can compete. And so I've taken that lesson with me, you know, through life and the, the discipline of trying to, of, you know, being an, an elite athlete, there's a discipline and a focus there. And we try to bring that discipline and focus, you know, here. Uh, to electrify each and every day. So that's clearly here. I think I shared with you my experience at Apollo, which is the foundational experience for me professionally. I, I cannot speak more highly of Leon and, and, and Josh and, and, and Mark and, and the entire team over there. You know, when that business was started, America was going out of business and Apollo was the lender of last resort. And we all wore many hats, uh, covering many different industries, dealing with lots of different chaos and so forth. And once again, you know, you learn how to organize, prioritize, you know, the must-haves versus the nice-to-haves versus the don't-need-to-haves. And, uh, and these are lessons that are, that are with me each and every day today, and we're, 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 we're pushing them into, into Electrify. I think if you speak to the people here, they, they would tell you that. Very cool. And what convinced you to join Apollo when, you know, everything was going wrong, and that would probably be a company that most people might stay away from during that time? What made you want to jump in? Well, I'm a bit of a, I'm a, bit of a contrarian. So um, I went to uh, Harvard Business School and I worked at Merrill Lynch in the summertime in, in uh, the banking department. And 
Um, I had been in the M&A business three years prior to that. And so that was actually not really that hard for me there. And I remember that Leon came up to, to uh, Harvard Business School to recruit. And this is all going on during the Milken scandal. And, uh, and, and Mike is a great guy also and a and true visionary is the leader and the founder of the, of the Hayo Bond uh, product, which is now a trillion dollar market. But uh, at the end of the day, we really liked each other and they gave me an offer and to come to New York and to join the LBO group and to work for Leon. And, uh, and I took it. And I remember that the people at Merrill Lynch said, you know, I called them up and said, listen, I, I appreciate your offer, but I'm, I'm actually going to go to Drexel Burnham. And they said, listen, we, we think that's the worst decision you could ever make in your life. We, we actually want to get you professional help to talk to someone about making that, that decision. I'll <laughs> never forget that comment. And I know the person who said it, and we joke about it uh, to this day, but um, and we're all laughing here in the room right now, but it's, it's hundred percent true. And what a decision it was because, um, I was at Drexel for a very short period of time. As, as everybody knows, you know, sadly, just a wonderful group of people. And I remember Leon calling me up one day after the firm had, uh, had succumbed, um, to bankruptcy and he called me up and said, what are you doing? I said, um, not much. And, uh, and he said, do you want to come buy bonds? And I said, I don't know what that means. And, uh, and he said, that's not the right answer. Do you want to come buy bonds? And I said, yes. And he said, that's the right answer. You'll be moving to Los Angeles tomorrow night. So, and, and, and that was, and that was that. And so, you know, sometimes you have to be open in life, uh, to possibilities to change. That's certainly one example where that was. That's cool. So do you have any activities outside of work that allow you to have a good work-life balance and be flexible and be open-minded when coming into work each day. What helps you get there? Uh, I exercise like a fiend. I love cycling. We've got a Peloton here, but my wife and I love to cycle up in uh, New Hampshire, the hills of, of, of New Hampshire. And I'll tell you, if, uh, if you want a good workout, go do that for an hour and a half. Yeah, it sounds intense. <laughs> yeah, it sounds, you know, but we, we enjoy like getting outside and, and, and disconnecting from, you know, all the devices. And, uh, that's, yep. that's number, that's number one. So that's, you have to work at your work-life balance, just like you have to work at everything else. You know, you work at relationships, you work at your work-life balance, you work at your, you have to work on your, on your company. You have to, you have to attack this like three, three problems and three things that, that need and deserve attention. And, uh, for me, you know, getting out and doing that is, is a great thing. Reading is another thing for me. I love to read. I love quiet and, and the ability to think and to reflect in in the quiet to listen to your own voice and to just to think about you know how to organize your life what you're doing all that's very very important but you know that's that's how we do it that's awesome do you have a book that uh, really resonated with you or that you think about many years after reading it or two or three yep i do each and every each and every day uh john chambers uh connect the dots i'm writing that one down now i don't think i've heard of that one and we will link that up in our show notes as well Awesome. And are there any apps or productivity tools that you use where you're like, this either changes my daily schedule in life or my team or anything that you're really loving right now? I will, I will tell you there, there, there are two. Uh, hotel Tonight is a, phenomenal, is a phenomenal app. My wife laughs at me. I never have a hotel reservation going into a city. I, I go in, I get off a plane. It's always an adventure for me. I never know where I'm going to go, but uh, I love it. I think I'm now up to like, you know, level you know, 5,820. And, uh, uh, but I, I love it and it's, uh, it's fun. The other one, of course, is the Kindle that has freed me up from carrying books across the world's airports so I can continue to do what I love most, which is to read. I agree. Yeah. I love both of those. All right. So the final question for you is any advice that you have to give to upcoming CEOs or maybe veteran CEOs where you're like this one or two pieces of advice will change everything if you follow it. You know, I, uh, I often think about that. I think it comes down to the following. 
set a very clear vision for what you're doing. Hire great people, people who are better than, than you are, who will challenge you and who can work cohesively and in a coordinated way. Communicate. You got to communicate to your people. And they have to communicate amongst themselves. And you have to communicate as a group. And I think finally, be prepared to reinvent yourself. Be prepared to commit to being curious and to reinventing yourself. Don't rest on your laurels. That's awesome. Yeah, really, really good advice. Love that. That's a great way to wrap up the show. So Ed, thanks so much for joining us. This has been a blast. And uh, yeah, hope to see you back maybe next time in the future. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, their customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.